I'm Sean Delaney, and you're listening to What Got You There. What Got You There is a must-follow for entrepreneurs, creatives, high achievers, and change makers. Each week, I sit down with some of the world's most influential people and focus on the journey behind their success. We uncover the strategy, tactics, and routines that help them get there. Now it's your journey, so it's time to learn what's going to get you there. What got you there with Sean Delaney? Uh, what got you there with Sean Delaney? What got you there with Shonda Laney? Uh, what got you there with got you, got you? What the reason I called it Churchill Walking with Destiny is because of the famous um, phrase that he came up with in his war memoirs about the day on which he was appointed prime minister, in which he said, um, I felt as if I were walking with destiny, and that all my past life had been but a preparation for this hour and for this trial. And I like to joke that actually all of my past life had been a preparation for writing this, uh, the hour and the trial of writing the book, because it was a trial. But I had been put on earth to write it. I was always going to write it. It, it He is the greatest Englishman, and I always wanted to write his biography. Andrew Roberts is a best-selling author, historian, and journalist. He is a visiting professor at the Department of War Studies, King's College London, and also has positions at the Hoover Institute at Stanford University and the Lerman Institute at New York Historical Society. On this episode, Andrew discusses some of the great leaders he's written about, such as Winston Churchill and Napoleon Bonaparte, and how he transitioned from a career in finance to become one of the great writers of history and what it takes to produce great work. Making change transpire. That's the mission behind the most amazing tasting protein bar brand taking the nutrition industry by storm. That brand, they're MCT Co. And they make the most delicious, keto-friendly, all-natural collagen protein bars. If you're obsessed with the quality of food going into your body like I am, then head out and pick up these amazing bars jammed with 10 grams of collagen protein. They only have two to three net carbs, no added sugar, and loaded with high quality MCT oil for the healthy fats from coconuts. Whether you're busy running the kids around from activity to activity, a professional athlete, or just someone looking for a great tasting convenience snack, do yourself a favor, head to mctco.com and use code WGYT for 20% off your order. Andrew, welcome to What Got You There. How are you doing today? Thank you very much indeed, Sean. That's very kind of you to have me on the show. Yes, like we were just discussing, I've been a a huge fan of your work. I've loved some of the detail and and new things I've learned. And we're going to dive a lot into the leaders that you've covered and yourself, but I'm really intrigued. When did you first become interested in these great leaders throughout history? Oh, golly. Um, As early as I can remember, I, um, my father read history at Oxford University. And so He and I were chatting about it really from a very early age of mine. (laughs) When I was six years old and all the other children in the class were asked what they wanted to be when they grew up, and they said things like astronaut and uh, train driver, I told the teacher that I wanted to be Lord High Protector of England. (laughs) So I was interested at least in uh, the great man theory of history from the age of six. Lofty goals indeed. What was it about some of these men and great leaders throughout history that you were intrigued by? Um, well, I think as a, as a young, um, young uh, child, you can imagine history through the lens of great men and women, can't you? It's, uh, it's not difficult to do. 
And uh, so I suppose it was a, a natural assumption that um, that great uh, conquerors and uh, and politicians and statesmen were um, were people that you could identify with um, naturally. You didn't have to worry about all the other things that you do when you actually write history books as an adult uh, to do with um, uh, taxation and uh, economics and so on. What about the intersection of this love, this fascination with historical figures, and then developing your writing process? When did you first discover that that interested you a lot, where you take on this career? Well, I when I um, left Cambridge University, I went to work in the city as an investment banker. And I realized uh, fairly quickly that I was completely useless at it. In fact, I was... Uh, I was um, uh, functionally enumerate. <laughs> and, uh, so uh, this was in the late 80s. And so I was lucky enough to um, be able to juck it and uh, and started writing history books. So it wasn't that I followed my dream from straight from university. I didn't. I, I, I wasted a couple of years of my life doing something that I was really very bad at. Were they entirely wasted years or were there any any good tips, advice or uh, frameworks you, you know, took funny on? Enough, <laughs> funny enough, they, um, they weren't entirely wasted years, in fact, because, as I mentioned earlier, economics and finance is, of course, tremendously important in, uh, in politics and statesmanship and history. And so, um, actually, I think I probably got a, a bit of a grounding there that um, in the city that I wouldn't have otherwise. But as far as my own pasty for um, for being a banker was concerned was you know absolutely non-existent that must have been a difficult decision I- i'd assume leaving a possibly lucrative career in investment banking to pursue it was no it was especially in the 80s it was very um lucrative and and uh, yes i um i took a massive um pay cut but um I've never once regretted it. It's one of those, you know, you look back on your life and um, especially if you're in your late 50s, like I am, and uh, you look at the things that you regret and the things you don't. I have not for one minute ever spent a second regretting leaving the city and, and writing history books. It's um, It's been one of the, um, you know, up there with the top three decisions of my life. I have to dig a little deeper there. Top three decisions of your life. What are the other two that round that out? Oh well, marrying my wife <laughs> and, uh, and and having children. I I'm not uh, going to pretend for a moment that I made some brilliant uh, uh, brilliant decision. Yeah, I had to figure those might be the other two answers, but I had to dig a little deeper just to see. <laughs> yeah, no, I'm not a monster. I wasn't going to. <laughs> You mentioned being able to look back and not regret it, but I would love to know what, what your mindset, what the narrative was like in your head when you made that decision. Take the pay cut, pursue something that's more intellectually stimulating. It's kind of uncovering your curiosity. What was that like at the time? Scary. Um, it really was scary. I, I was uh, um, you know, a young merchant banker in the city, uh, very nice suits. I, I'd um, just bought a open top BMW. I was feeling very pleased with myself indeed. <laughs> and um, then I moved to a job where I had to uh, write a book, which took three years, and um, for which I got an advance of £1,500 um, uh, to live off for three years. It was, I couldn't have done it without immense generosity of my parents. And um, 
Uh, I will always thank them. I dedicated that book to them, in fact. And uh, for me, uh, I was just in the most tremendously uh, fortunate position that they were generous and they believed in me. And of course, they had enough money to be able to let me um, pursue what turned out to be my dream rather than being stuck in a in a job that I would have hated and been useless at. You mentioned being scared. Was, were you viewing that, though, as a risk, or was it you had self-belief and, and you understood that if you pursued this, something that stimulated you intellectually, you think there'd be Oh, no, it was, it was clearly a risk because <laughs> I'd written a rubbish book. You know, I'd thrown up this, um, this well-paid job in order to <laughs> spend three years writing a book that no one read. As it was, actually, I don't think many people did read um, my first book, biography of Lord Halifax, called The Holy Fox, um, but that didn't really matter terribly much because it was a great critical success. I had the most fabulous uh, set of reviews um, for it, and it set me up for um, future books, of course, also for journalism and uh, various other forms of, um, uh, of making the income that, um, that I've sort of stuck with ever since. Yeah, I'd love to hear about the time during that first book. I'm always intrigued about people's learning curve and that steep learning curve when you take on something new. What was it like writing that first book? Was it just almost a fire hose of information coming at you to to understand what would result in a good book? Yes, and I didn't know how to do it. I didn't have any friends at the time who were writing history books who I could ask about the process. So I actually literally just started going to archives with pieces of paper. This was before the word processor um, and um, and writing down longhand uh, on six by four cards, various quotations and, and where they came from and the date of them and just building up a, uh, a, a huge archive of my own really. Um, and then putting the cards in chronological order and trying to work out in my own mind what was important and what wasn't. I think I think I probably should have written that book in two years. I would today, um, but in those days it took uh, it took at least three because I was making mistakes all the time. Um, but I, uh, I I learned from all of them. I mean, they're not they're not archival mistakes I've ever made uh, again. You do learn enormously from the from the first thing that you do first serious job you do in life I think um, and uh, and today I have a different process but one that I couldn't have come to unless I'd made the errors um, that I had in the past. I, I want to dive into that current day process here in a minute but I would love to know the differences between your first and second book. I have to assume you, you vetted out some of those processes like you just alluded to but even just the overall confidence and, and trust in yourself was there a major difference between book one and two? Yes, hugely. Um, in book one, I was very much um, tiptoeing. Uh, I, I didn't have any self-confidence as a writer for obvious reasons. I'd never written a book before, um, and, or indeed anything before, um, apart from essays at university. And I didn't want to impose uh, my own views too much, because what if they were shot down in the reviews? I, was, um, I wanted to be an enfant terrible, but there was um, very little opportunity to do that when you're writing your first book, I think. Um, my second book was an awful lot more um, opinionated. It was much more me, really. Uh, it was highly controversial. It was uh, attacked. 
and it sold many, many more copies. I think my first book, I personally met every single person who ever read that book, that biography of Lord Halifax. Whereas my my second book was much more successful, made ten times the amount of money, and um, was a uh, it was also a critical success, although it was highly criticised. If you see what I mean. How do you deal with that criticism? Well, luckily, I have a rhinocerine hide for criticism. <laughs> no, seriously, uh, it was, I don't know, it's, I, I have a completely pachydermatous skin when it comes to people being horrible and vicious and hateful about me. Um, I don't know where it comes from, really. It might have come from, I was involved in university politics a bit at Cambridge, and um, so it might have been there where people were, were hateful to you for long periods of time. And you just have to get used to ignoring it. Um, and so I think that was probably the reason. Yeah. I mean, I'm not saying that I don't, I'm completely, uh, it's not, not that um, no one can ever touch me. You know, I do still um, tend to read reviews. And if they're, if they're unpleasant, um, I'm not saying it hurts at all, it doesn't, but um, I do make a mental note. If there's a, something genuine that the person's writing um, that uh, is worthwhile, I will take it on board. Um, but if it's just an attempt to um, to be as unpleasant as possible to me, then uh, then it's water off a duck's back and I just make a mental note to get my own back next time. Is there a clear distinction there for you between actual valuable advice from someone and just advice that's rubbish? Yes. Oh, absolutely. And you can tell, very interestingly, um, you can tell within the first uh, paragraph, really, of a review, whether or not the criticism is intended personally, or uh, whether it's constructive criticism. And if it's the latter, then of course, you take it on board, you'd be insane not to. I mean, that would be an act of completely sociopathic narcissism. But if you, uh, if you think it's a, it's a personal and abusive attack, and I promise you, I have had hundreds of those over my um, uh, time as uh, last 30 years or so as a, as a writer, um, then you, um, then you um, respond in your own personal way when you have an opportunity to, but you certainly don't let it uh, get you down. And you never let it show because that's the other terrible thing. Um, there's an element of the sort of bully in the playground um, that uh, if you let it show that you've been got to, then it just encourages more of the same. Some valuable life advice there. I'd love to know how you selected your early subjects for what you were going to write about. Um, I think uh, it was serendipity, really. I, I uh, Not the first one, the very first one, Lord Halifax, the biography of Lord Halifax was um, done solely and rather coldly, in fact, um, by my literary agent, my first literary agent and I, um, where we sat down and looked at all the major office holders of, of the British government over the last hundred years and found out one who, a foreign secretary, Lord Halifax, who hadn't been written about um, for a very long time. And so that was, I mean, it's it's rather cold-blooded way of going about it, but I do recommend it to people. You know, if there has, if there's an important person who hasn't been written about, it's extremely rare. And, um, there, and there might be a gap in the market, and there was in Lord Halifax's case, and so I plugged it. After that, um, 
actually, I have been, <laughs> um, I don't know how well I come out of this. Basically, I haven't really come up with the ideas of, for my own books uh, terribly much. Um, my um, my girlfriend has, um, has come up with one. My first wife uh, came up with one. My publisher, my literary agent, my parents. Um, loads of people seem to have, um, have uh, come up with the ideas, except for me. Um, I think it's a little bit better now, but certainly in my early part of my uh, life, I did uh, I did tend to sort of scratch my head and then somebody would come up with an idea and I go, aha, of course, that's what I should be doing for the next three years of my life. Huh. I, I would have never imagined that just just based on, based on the, the breadth and the knowledge and the amount of work you put into these. So, so how did Churchill Walking with Destiny, how did you decide to write that? Because I know you had written previous works on Churchill. Uh, yes, I'd already written five books with Churchill in the title or the subtitle. Um, that was the book. <laughs> in fact, there's a line about um, uh, the reason I called it Churchill Walking with Destiny is because of the famous um, phrase that he came up with in his war memoirs about the day on which he was appointed prime minister in which he said, um, I felt as if I were walking with destiny, and that all my past life had been but a preparation for this hour and for this trial. And I like to joke that actually all of my past life had been a preparation for writing this, uh, the hour and the trial of writing the book, because it was a trial. Um, but I, um, I had been put on earth to write it. I was always going to write it. it it's, you know... He is the greatest Englishman, and I always wanted to write his biography, but I didn't want to do it too soon. Um, that would have been a mistake. I think my career needed to have got to a stage where I could um, I could do it properly. And also, I didn't want to do it too late, because um, there's an element also of uh, sources that become available that you've really got to grab it. Um, otherwise, somebody else is going to use those sources and um, and write their book instead. So I was extremely fortunate that um, the time came in um, in 2018 for me to uh, publish that book. Can you walk me through that balance of, of not being too early and not being too late? Uh, I guess I'm more intrigued about being too early. Was it was it about just your understanding of the subject matter, your ability to write, what was going through your head there? Oh, lots of things. Um, it takes three years to, to or in this case, actually, I think four years uh, for, me, for, for me to write a, a big book like um, Churchill. And Churchill is a big book. It's 850 pages. Um, so uh, I knew that it was going to need a lot of time for, for the research and, and for the writing. Although it only actually, in the end, took me 100 days to write the whole book. Um, by that stage, I knew exactly what I was going to be doing because I spent the previous four years thinking about it and working on it and, and researching it. And that was the first thing. The second thing was just your, one's own maturity as a writer. And if it's going to be the, the it sounds a very pompous thing to say, but nonetheless, if it's going to be the magnum opus of your life, if it's going to be the best um, book um, that you uh, can possibly write if it's going to be something that you think you'll be hope that you'll be remembered for and that's going to be read after you die you have to do the absolute best and you have to be at the top of your game and I wanted to do that 
um, in my mid-50s when I thought that intellectually maybe, but just in every other way, as far as the energy required, I start working at four o'clock in the morning. Um, and that requires a, a, a certain degree of um, self-control that I'm not sure that I'll have in my sort of 60s and 70s. I might just be too tired for it. And so I wanted to make sure that I wrote that book um, you know, when I needed to, when I should do it. Uh, but also, as I, as I mentioned earlier, you know, the, there are sources um, that were becoming available. Her Majesty the Queen allowed me to be the first Churchill biographer to use her father's diaries, for example, King George VI's diaries. And he met Churchill every Tuesday of the Second World War, and, uh, and he wrote down everything Churchill said, and Churchill trusted him with all of the great secrets of the Second World War. And if I wasn't the first Churchill biographer to be able to use those diaries, then somebody else would have been. And um, I would be kicking myself, you know, probably for the rest of my life for not having um, not having written the book when I did. You mentioned this was the magnum opus of your career. When you look at and hold that book, what's the emotion? What are the thoughts that come through your head? I'm afraid the first one is a, a, a rather unattractive, um, inordinate sense of pride. Um, they were four wonderful years. Um, I was incredibly uh, lucky to spend the first of them in New York, um, living with um, uh, living with my wife and my children coming over and uh, having an absolutely fabulous apartment overlooking uh, Central Park. And uh, so it brings back rushes of extremely powerful memories going off to the New York Public Library uh, to do research. And then coming back and living in England and researching at, uh, at the Churchill Archives in Cambridge, um, where I make a lot of friends and um, archive I love. So, so you, get, you get enormous sort of rabbit punches of nostalgia hitting you in the solar plexus when you pick up a book and are thinking about the writing of it. And, uh, oh, I don't know, you, you also um, occasionally look down the... Uh, the acknowledgements and see the friends who um, who you interviewed, people who knew Churchill and worked with Churchill. Few of them, uh, not that many of them, still alive actually. So, so you get sad memories as well as um, happy, pride-filled ones. And uh, and that's true of the acknowledgements of any of your books. You know, they they have enormous power to make you feel happy and sad and nostalgic and, and proud. You mentioned the acknowledgements. I'm wondering if, if any of those people happen to be mentors throughout your career. Oh, yes, uh, several of them, absolutely. No, well, I mean, I didn't have any when I started. Um, I just had the, uh, um, the help of the literary agent, Andrew Loney, an extremely uh, talented man who I knew at Cambridge University, um, who was my literary agent. But... I didn't have um, anybody to sort of tell me how how it was done, how you write a history book. But once Lord Halifax was published, um, I did meet lots of historians, you know, and I got onto the uh, to the literary party circuit in London, and um, and enjoyed very much enjoyed meeting other historians. And uh, now many of my <laughs> sounds like a terrible cliche, but many of my very best friends are historians and um and i and i love spending time with them and uh 
literary events and literary festivals and so on. I'm, I'm constantly meeting uh, other historians. And I and as far as actual mentors concerned, there was one man in particular, a man called Kenneth Rose, who was the biographer of King George V, um, and a very accomplished diarist as well, it's turned out. And he, um, he guided me um, a bit about about um, what you can, I suppose, first of all, the English language and, and how, you, how you write, but also um, the extent to which you have to back up all of your, um, all of your sources with proper endnotes and so on. It's, um, it's a, the, the actual sort of uh, mechanics of, of writing history, I, I think um, he was very influential. Um, after I'd written my first book. You mentioned the guidance, and I'm always wondering about what are those guidance steps that that we can learn from whoever we're having this conversation with. And you're someone who's been successful for three-plus decades now, and I'm I'm assuming you've kind of been able to look back and assess some of the things you've done. What do you think you've done just to be able to sustain this level of excellence for so long? Um, Well, I like to joke that it's alimony and a mortgage. (laughs) <laughs> you you can't you can't if you've got alimony and a mortgage which I've had for over twenty years you absolutely cannot cannot uh, have writer's block you know um, that is a luxury that novelists can have but uh, but but historians can't and one of the reasons of course why historians tend not to get writer's block is because you can always write about what happened next what the next day of your subject. Um, did, and so uh, and so you have a, a straightforward thing in narrative in chronology that explains um, why you can always write the next page and you can never have a completely blank page uh, because from the moment that he he dies until is born until the moment he dies he's doing something and you ought to be writing about it so it makes it much easier I think for being a, an historian than being a novelist. Um, on the on a more sort of serious uh, and um, uh, perhaps a bit more profound um, level, um, I am somebody who very much responds to deadlines. Uh, ever since I was at university, and we had um, um, essay deadlines, and then certainly with journalism, I have done an enormous amount of journalism in my life. I've written for around a hundred, maybe more, newspapers and magazines. Um, over the last 30 years. And I have, in that time, never once delivered any copy late, and I've never um, delivered it either 10 words um, too few or 10 words too many. It has absolutely been the the right length at the right time. And I find that editors, um, especially, you know, they're, they're hassled people by and large editors, and they sometimes don't care what you've written, but they jolly well need to have the copy on time and at the right length. So they don't have to do too much editing. So um, to be reliable, to be utterly reliable um, in uh, terms of delivering um, manuscripts or delivering articles, I think is tremendously important. And uh, and it's something that um, I respond well to, I've noticed. Being a man who enjoys precision, I, I very much appreciate that. And you gave us a slight preview into your research process and even your writing process. And I know it's extensive. So I would love to start about how you go from idea. And I know you mentioned these ideas are sourced 
from all over the place. You never know where your next book might come from. But when you hear that idea from someone or you think it up, what are the next steps to you actually starting a book? Well, the, the, the key one is the business one where you go to, in, in this case, my, uh, my agent today is Georgina Capel, who's a, a genius. Um, and you talk to her about her ideas and thoughts and, and views and whether it's going to work commercially um, and whether or not, you know, publishers are going to like it and, and want to publish it. So that's um, a straightforward business thing, which you have to get right and in that you have to get the right agents. There are dozens, scores, maybe hundreds of very good writers and historians out there whose work um, either is not published or isn't published very well. Um, and that's because they haven't got um, a good agent. And so I, I get asked continually, you know, on a weekly basis by people how to get their, their books published. And I always say the same thing is you've got to get a good agent. Um, once you've done that, of course, you um, you start to do the broad concept. So you read, if it's a biography, you'll read the um, top five biographies uh, of the same person, of the subject. Um, and you'll, in all the time you'll be reading that, you'll be working out for yourself whether you agree with what they're saying, whether you disagree, whether there's a, um, a, a counter argument to be made um, then you go into the um, into the archives, and that's the most fun bit for a writer usually, uh, certainly for me, where you plunge into the archives and you look at the original letters that your your subject has sent and received, and um, and and really try to uh, get under the skin of your subject, get into the mind of your subject, work out what's going on in the world of your subject at the time that he's writing or receiving the, the letters. Um, and uh, and you and then you've, the other great fun thing is just following your nose, you know, serendipity again. If there's an area that you think the reader will be interested in and that you're interested in, you, um, you pursue it. And if that takes you down um, rabbit holes, then, then wonderful. And sometimes you can waste an entire week uh, and actually, it doesn't wind up in the, anything of it in the book at all. But, but never, ever is that time that you regret because it's part of, um, of the pleasure of being a writer. I'm sure a lot of people, myself included, when you're reading those top five biographies or when you're in the archives, what is your process like? Are you, are you just handwriting out notes and, and your thoughts and, and crossing out and, and underlining? What does that look like for you? Well, it used to be handwritten. I, I wrote the uh, the whole of my biography of Lord Salisbury, which again was about nine hundred pages um, longhand, and um, and it was typed out later. So yes, it is a uh, and you're so you're writing notes, you're writing um, things down the, the entire time. Um, but um, but now it's all on the computer. It's all on the word processor. You take that into the archive, and if um, a thought hits you, you, you stick it down. And then you'll find that a year later, I mean, sometimes I, my books last, my biography of Lord Salisbury took me five years to write. My biography of Napoleon took me six years to write. And so you'll change your mind. Obviously you will. Half a decade later, you'll think that what an idiotic thing I wrote back in 1999. That's completely um, ridiculous and wrong. I've now seen so much evidence to disprove that and um, that I will just... Um, slice out 
uh, and, uh, and and cut out and delete um, those five pages of thoughts that I had because they were jejun juvenile thoughts, which I now know to be rubbish. Um, but you don't do that until the minute that you sit down and write the book. You have to have all of your notes first and then you write the book. I can't understand those historians, and there are several of them, who will write sections of the book and then feed them into um, the rest of the book. And that strikes me as just impossible because what if you do find a piece of evidence that undermines or countermands the, um, the thing that you've already written? So it strikes me that you you keep you get all of the evidence together, and then on one uh, day for this next book that I'm writing, it's going to be the first of September um, of uh, this year. You you know wrap a cold towel around your head and start writing the book, <laughs> but have to have all of the information um, there, and don't be surprised if you um, ignore forty percent of it because that was just what you were thinking about at the time during your research for Napoleon, I know you traveled to a large number of the battlegrounds and, and I'm wondering the importance of that for you about just understanding the photography and, and what is it? Why is that so essential in part of your research process? Um, well, it's only essential obviously for a soldier, but I think if you are writing a, a, um, a military biography, then to not go to the battlefields is a bit like a detective not bothering to go to the scene of the crime. I mean, you absolutely have to be there. And you're right, of, the, of Napoleon's 60 battlefields, I visited 53 of them for that book. Since uh, then, I've, I've gone to another one. Unfortunately, the others aren't um, possible to, um, to see because they've all been built over. But, um, yeah, I think it's, it's, topography is all in a battle. You know, what the general can see from where he physically was... Um, and where he moved to and where he, the way in which he understands the um, the topography of the battle just is so very, very important. And you see that, of course, at its, at its most extensive, at its most um, uh, dangerous, I suppose, at the Battle of Balaclava, where the charge of the Light Brigade was ordered to attack even though the um, Commander-in-Chief, Lord Raglan, couldn't see um, the exact valley down which it, it was um, eventually to go. Uh, and um, and that's, the, that's the sort of most uh, notorious example of it. But, but equally, if you go to some of the battlefields in the Peninsula War, you see why um, the Duke of Wellington had to ride miles and miles across battlefields in order to get a better view of what was going on. So the Battle of Salamanca being the classic example of that. Um, but um, at the Battle of Waterloo, he, he rode something like 12 miles that day, backwards and forwards and backwards and forwards constantly to be in the place where he was able to see what was happening and was therefore able to give the uh, orders necessary. The same, precisely the same, of course, with Napoleon. And, um, and that's a it's a it's a prerequisite, I think. Yeah, and it comes out so well in your in your books. I, I read a great number of of books and biographies, and the amount of detail, the understanding of the subject matter, uh, I, I'm truly in awe of. It. That's why I'm diving so deep. I hope these aren't boring for you. I'm truly fascinated by this process. Uh, uh, no, I'm I'm an appalling egotist. I love talking about my. <laughs> 
myself, so don't worry about it. <laughs> well, that's fantastic. Well, I'm really intrigued. You mentioned spending a few years doing the research, and then when you sit down, it's only 100 days. What is that process yes. like? You you mentioned, I think you said you start at 4 a.m. Is that how you do it every day? Yes, yes. I get I, yes, I get up at four, between 4 and 4.30 um, to to start work. And when I'm writing the uh, the book, and indeed for a lot of time when I'm researching, I have a um, uh, obviously a sort of weird metabolism when, for for when the actual book's uh, being written. I use a energy drink called um, Red Bull, which I drink in the afternoons. I'm not sure it's very good for me, but after breakfast, sorry, after lunch, I'll I'll swig down one of these things, and it'll keep me pretty hyper up until uh, the time I I go to bed. And so I can squeeze a good 16, 17 hours um, working in a, in a day, more than that sometimes. And, um, and if you keep that up for 100 days and you write, as I am able to do, 5,000 words a day, you've got a, you've got a good 850, 900-page book in three months. Huh. The, the number one question I get from listeners, they always want to know about the guests we're featuring about their routine. And you mentioned working straight after some Red Bulls for 16 hours. So what are you actually doing? You get up between four and 4.30. Do you just sit right down to the computer, grab your notes and just start pounding out the book? Well, my notes are already on the computer in, they will be in chronological order. Um, so I will know what my subject was, uh, was doing. And I'm a great believer in chronology and narrative history. I don't believe people think thematically. I don't believe they live their lives thematically. Um, you know, they you live your life from day to day, and that's true if you're Churchill or Napoleon or you or me. So, um, so I do think that it's very important also that you should never assume that your your subject knows something that they couldn't possibly know because it's still in the future. And if you're going to bring your reader with you on a journey through somebody's life, um, the reader understands that and is and is perfectly relaxed with that and actually I think is is very annoyed if you treat it any other way. So so I'm a true believer in um, in narrative and uh, and context. Um, and that makes it much easier in fact as a writer because you start on the day that he's uh, or she is born. And you um, end on the day they die, and so you've already got your your essential structure. All you have to do is to fit in between those days all of the important things that happen to them, and you do that through having, as well as a chronology, a series of files on specific aspects of um, of their of their existence. I, I think with my Napoleon book, I wound up with well over four hundred files. And um, you insert those at the key moments of the narrative. I'm not sure how frequently you're not on a deadline, but when you're not, what does your consumption of information, books, resources, things of that nature look like? Are you pretty routine with what you're consuming? Um, no, I'm always on a deadline. <laughs> the, um, <laughs> I have... Um, a, as I say, I thrive on them. I believe in them. I, I think that they, uh, with, without them, I, I don't know what I do. But um, certainly over the last 30 years, there has always been either a manuscript that I've got to be to deliver or an article I've got to write or a 
um, radio or TV show that I've got to appear on or something, you know, that I'm that concentrates my my mind. On occasion, my wife and I will go on two week holiday somewhere and um, uh, and I'll be able to read something that isn't at all connected to my um, uh, work. And I find it incredibly difficult to uh, um, to do that. And in fact, I always carry around on me, on my person, at every uh, all the way through, and and by the side of my um, bed, a, a pad of paper that I write down ideas. There's even one in the car. Um, if I come up with them, because I can't stop my brain working from thinking about what book I'm writing at the time. So I think I, I, I my poor wife, she goes, I drag her to battlefields the whole time. It's very lucky that she enjoys history uh, so much because I'm constantly uh, taking her on holidays where people have died. <laughs> <laughs> right, you're a true romantic, aren't you? <laughs> on, our, on our honeymoon, we went to uh, the killing fields of um, Cambodia as well as all the beautiful things like Angkor Wat and so on. On the day after I proposed to her, I took her to the Villa d'Este in uh, <laughs> in uh, the Italian lakes where Mussolini was shot. You, you sure know how to set the mood. <laughs> on holiday, been on holidays to Stalingrad and Auschwitz and uh, all sorts of places. Uh, she's a, a, she's a um, wonderful uh, woman. I'm very lucky to have her. Well, we're going to dive extensively here into some of your books, but I'm wondering, are there any books that you've read or just thoroughly enjoyed over the years? Oh, of course, thousands. I mean, I I review, I don't know, 50 books a year, I suppose. Um, and uh, and please don't ask me to uh, <laughs> to to tell you all the all the books I've loved over the years. It would be uh, like I don't know, um, choosing between my children. Yeah, I have to imagine the amount that you've consumed over the years. So I, I want to dive into Churchill first and, and your legendary book on him, Churchill Walking with Destiny. After you finished writing that or even during the process, I would love to know what surprised you about him you might not have known. Golly, um, do you know, we mentioned earlier about the Queen's father's diaries. And, um, and I think what surprised me um, most about the book was how critical of the Americans Churchill was to the king. I mean, he, of course, he couldn't be in public. He couldn't even be to his entourage, really. Uh, he wasn't um, uh, very much to his wife. But when he spoke to the king, he was able to unburden um, because he saw the Second World War as a great struggle between good and evil and between um, civilization and barbarism, uh, between fascism and democracy. And for the first two years of the war, more than that, the Americans weren't involved, even though they were the greatest democracy in the world at that stage. And so, you know, he, he was frustrated. He was highly frustrated by the glacially slow movement of the Roosevelt administration towards bellicosity in the Second World War. And, um, and it shows, you know, and, and uh, there, I quote uh, several of these sort of outbursts of irritation with the Americans at the same time, of course, that he was desperately trying to trying to encourage the Roosevelt administration to get more involved. Something you mentioned a little while ago was just the, the subtitle of the book, Walking with Destiny. And this was just some unreal belief. He, he truly believed that. 
Did you find this to be true for Napoleon as well? Did he always assume he, he was meant for great things? Well, we don't have Napoleon at the age of 15, like we do with Churchill, um, saying um, there will be great struggles, great upheavals in our lives, and I shall be called upon to save London, save England, and save the empire. Uh, Winston Churchill said that when he was a, I think, 16-year-old schoolboy, in fact, at, uh, at Harrow. And we don't have the exact equivalent for Napoleon, but um, there's no doubt that Napoleon believed in what he called his star, and uh, and he was going to follow his star. He spoke a lot about fortune, about destiny, uh, providence. Um, he used to speak of her as a woman, as did um, Napo- as did um, Churchill, and um, and at the time of the first abdication in 1814, um, he spoke of how she, i.e. fortune, fate, destiny, had um, turned her back on him for the first time in his life and spurned him, um, even though he had wooed her as a lover. So there's, he had, um, as did Churchill, a very um, almost sort of psychosexual uh, relationship with his own sense of destiny, yes. If you were in school with Napoleon and then you fast-forwarded 10, 15 years, would you just been truly astounded by the level of success? Because, uh, I could be wrong here, but did he appear to be somewhat average throughout his adolescence? No, no, I don't think it's fair to say he was average. No, he's a highly intelligent um, lad, and uh, you wouldn't necessarily have thought that he was going to be Emperor of France, of course, because you'd have never uh, considered the French uh, monarchy was going to be overthrown uh, when you were still a schoolboy in the um, uh, 1770s. However, I think you would have um, spotted him as uh, as someone who's going to do something um, remarkable. He he kept himself to himself quite a lot. Um, uh, that can be the mark of a, a psychopath, but also it can be somebody who um, might be marked out for greatness. He was the, the primary reason, though. I think that you would think that he was going to go places was that he was a huge reader. Uh, a reader of history, a reader of biography. He read about um, the ancient world and uh, Caesar and Alexander the Great and so on. And so um, in that sense, he was very clearly um, taking notes about how to be a great man. And so if you looked at that carefully and didn't um, take into account the kind of thing that children do about, you know, sportiness or uh, or any of that uh, kind of um, uh, thing, I think you might well have noticed that Napoleon was going to be somebody special. That was a reoccurring theme, right, amongst many of the leaders you study, just kind of that obsession with studying history. I even know Churchill loved Napoleon and and Alexander the Great. Is that something that you've seen? Yes. um, I've written about this a bit in my new book, um, Leadership in War. Um, because it is true, Napoleon um, was studied by Churchill, Margaret Thatcher studied um, studied Churchill, um, Napoleon studied Julius Caesar. You know, there is a sort of apostolic succession um, from the, um, uh, you, can, you can take it up to today. Uh, Boris Johnson has written a book about, um, about Churchill. But there are so many people, and Winston Churchill himself, when crossing Westminster Hall in June 1953 at the time of the Queen's coronation, um, 
was was stopped by a young American student who asked him some life advice. And he said, study history, hmm. study history, for therein lies all the secrets of statecraft. That's really interesting, and I, I loved reading the most recent book, uh, just kind of the, the numerous different chapters on leaders throughout history. It's a, it's a quick snippet, and then you can even dive further into some of the ones you went extensively on, such as Churchill and Napoleon. Churchill, once again, uh, I'm just so fascinated by the amount he was able to do and produce for, for someone that seems like they, they enjoyed their time in the bathtub. How was he able to put out such a tremendous amount of writing and work? Yes, actually, he he had two baths a day, which uh, um, which was hard work for his servants. <laughs> for him, he was a um, machine. He was an absolute machine, and he was driven by the fact that his parents were great spendthrifts. Uh, that he never had very much money. Um, he was <laughs> he was nearly bankrupted twice in the 1930s. He was. Uh, living as he as he put it, um, um, hand to sorry mouth to hand, um, because he uh, wrote for a living and he wrote thirty seven books, eight hundred articles. Um, he would uh, negotiate harsh harshly over the fees he was paid and the commissions and so on. He was a a, a jobbing journalist and an historian, and all the better as a statesman and and politician for that. Um, because it did mean that when he ma made the speeches, the great speeches of 1940 and 41 and so on, um, he was drawing on a lifetime of wordsmithery, if there's such a word, um, and, um, and his capacity for literature. And it shows. Can you speak about those speeches? Because he was able to memorize every word of our plus speeches, correct? Well, he did up until 1904. But then when he was 30 years old in 1904, he lost his thread of, um, of thought in the Trade Disputes Act debate. And he had to sit down and, um, and people worried that he had the same brain disease that had killed his father. And so after that, he actually changed his um, method of speaking and um, didn't memorize the whole thing. Instead, he um, drew out his thoughts on pieces of paper uh, in what he called psalm form, um, because they would have the important kernel of each sentence um, set out and, and, and typed out. And you can go to the Churchill uh, Library um, in, uh, sorry, the Churchill Archives in, in Cambridge, and you can see these speeches and the way that he worked on them. And so he did use notes um, later on in his career and, uh, and, and, of course, it was much more important later on in his career where every word had to count. Yeah, we were talking about studying history as, as one of the reoccurring themes a lot of these leaders did. And another one seemed like their ability to compartmentalize. Is, is this something you saw amongst multiple leaders, just that uncanny yes. ability? Yes, absolutely. No, and this is something also that I go into in, uh, in my Leadership in War book um, because it really, it's, you see it again and again, the capacity of these people to be able to put everything to one side and concentrate entirely on one particular subject and then just put that subject, as Napoleon said, in a drawer, close the drawer and open another drawer and talk about another subject 
And Napoleon used to be able to do this under the most extraordinary circumstances. A couple of examples. Um, in the retreat from Moscow, before that happened, when he was actually in Moscow and the Russians were burning down um, two-thirds of Moscow, Napoleon was able to just sit down and write the rules of a girls' school that he wanted to set up in Saint-Denis, just outside Paris. And uh, on another occasion, he was um, at the Battle of Borodino. Uh, as, the, as the battle was about to begin, um, he wrote the regulations of the Comédie Française. And this is the most incredible thing. He would, he would whilst he's on campaign, marching from, uh, from place to place, he would write to the prefect of Genoa, telling him to stop taking his mistress to the opera. It's a completely extraordinary thing. Were I to um, be about to fight the bloodiest battle in human history up to that point, which Borodino was, um, or Borodino, as uh, of course it's known in the in the West, um, I think that would entirely encapsulate all of my thoughts and and, and worries. But if he had an extra five minutes, it would you know it would be uh, uh, spent doing something completely different. That is truly remarkable. And I keep bringing up these things I'm intrigued by, but I would love for for you to just describe some of the, some of these recurring themes that you found or little quirks that you're just been truly fascinated by. Well, um, uh, I think one of the things that surprised me when I was writing Leadership in War was the way in which um, their their childhoods, or at least not they weren't children. The, the period between. Um, about 14 to, to 20, was very important in the way in which each of these leaders um, got an overall view of the world and the sense of themselves and their place in the world and what they were going to be able to, um, what they wanted to achieve. Again and again, you see this. And then also between the ages of 20 and 25, those are vital for the point at which these leaders discovered the capacity for leadership within themselves, usually by some, some major moment. Uh, so Napoleon was 26 when he won the Battle of Lodi and, uh, and got his troops across the, um, the River Po, captured Milan. He saw, he, he understood that he was going to be a great man after that battle. Uh, Churchill was um, uh, 25, when he escaped from the prisoner of war camp in um, Pretoria in the Boer War and came, became an international uh, uh, sort of celebrity and, uh, and across the empire he was admired for this uh, daring escape. Margaret Thatcher um, did far better in a uh, general election than she was expected to at the age of 24 and she found uh, a good deal of self-confidence that came as a result of that. Stalin um, was, I think, 28 when he held up the state bank in Tiflis and stole the equivalent of $4 million, uh, which made him much more respected in the Bolshevik um, party. Admiral Nelson sailed down the San Juan River at the age of 25 and uh, captured the town that he, Spanish town that he held for the next six months, you know, Again and again, you see it with de Gaulle, you see it with um, with Eisenhower and uh, General Marshall and, and various other people that I write about in, in that book. 
um, that there is a moment where they they spot that they could themselves be, or indeed already were, leaders of extraordinary capacity. I'm afraid with Adolf Hitler, it was the moment where he got his Iron Cross first class at the age of 29 in the in the trenches. Um, and uh, he'd already got the Iron Cross second class, I believe. And it was, um, you know, just a, a moment of appreciation of his own capacity for um, for leadership. So leadership is not a, in, in and of itself a good thing. It's a bit like nuclear fission. It can be used... Um, it can be used for good as well as for um, for harm, um, but it is a uh, it is a phenomenon that requires, I think, um, study. That's what I love about your work so much. I think that you show both sides of this coin. You know, you're not afraid to unveil some of the the negative sides of, of leadership and success. But but one thing I'm intrigued by that you were just mentioning about these defining moments, particularly from from 20 to, to 26, does that all tie back to just developing an inner confidence amongst these people? Yes, yes. I mean, a combination of that and obviously the times they live in, you know, I mean, bring it, um, the, the um, uh, uh, cometh the man, cometh the, cometh the hour, cometh, cometh the man, and in Margaret Thatcher's case, woman. Um, is a um, is an obvious uh, aspect of it as well, but yes, I think um, there is this key moment in the late in their late twenties when they do something that requires leadership and brings forth their best, and they think, "Aha, I actually could be onto something here. I could be as great as X, Y, or Z." And um, it's a um, uh, it's a moment that gives them confidence, of course, um, uh, but also which really does uh, ignite the ambition. And you get this with Napoleon, who uh, says, I think, of that battle of the Battle of Lodi. Um, yes, it was the Battle of Lodi, where he says that um, you must uh, speak to the soul. That's the way to inspire the men. And he had worked out how he could speak to the soul. And, um, you know, within 10 years, he was uh, emperor of France. What about when that confidence is challenged, when, when they experience a, a major setback or failure? Is there anything? Well, it, uh, yes, again, um, it's a key moment. And it happened in, uh, in all of the um, cases, I think, that I write about. In fact, of the nine people I write about in Leadership in War, I have nine essays on different people. Over half of them, five, uh, went to jail at some stage in their lives. Um, and, um, and, and Stalin, of course, exiled to Siberia as well. Uh, yeah, um, the way in which they dealt with setbacks, and they all had setbacks, was to um, treat the setback as a, as a learning experience and as something that was not going to define their lives and their careers. So they they took on board the setback in each case. And with Winston Churchill, he had five or six setbacks. He was constantly losing by-elections and, uh, and so on, but making mistakes, terrible errors in his life again and again, you know, blunder after blunder. But he learned from each of them. And, um, and in fact, the more, the, the worse the blunder, the more important the lesson. Uh, you get the classic of that, being the Dardanelles catastrophe of 1915 and 1916, where he 
his decisions led directly to the killing or wounding of 147,000 people in that Gallipoli campaign. And from that, he learned never to overrule the chiefs of staff in the Second World War. So if all three of the chiefs of staff agreed on something, he did not, um, he did not overrule them. And that was a, a key factor. He had every right to if he wanted to. He was uh, Minister of Defence as well as Prime Minister. So constitutionally, he could have. But he didn't because he learned the lesson of a quarter of a century earlier. I don't know if you're someone who who despises favorites, and this doesn't need to be a favorite, but I would just be intrigued who you deem the most impressive leader of everyone you've studied. Uh, well, I um, I think for sheer leadership qualities, I do come back to Napoleon um, again and again for reasons that are made clear at the end of the Napoleon chapter. I go through all of the various um, leadership qualities that he personally shows. But of course, it didn't save him. He still wound up losing the Battle of War and dying in exile um, in, uh, in the middle of, a, um, of the Atlantic Ocean on St. Helena, uh, the second most remote island uh, in the world. And when you go there, you, you, you do feel it. Um, and uh, so I'm not arguing by any means that just leadership qualities automatically are going to lead to success. You know, sometimes they're not. Yeah, you mentioned the, the recap at the end of the chapter. It was funny. In, in your book, Leadership in War, I, I was almost highlighting the entire chapter. I went back through my Kindle notes, and <laughs> it, it was just remarkable, the, the, the number of things they've accomplished and what they've done. What about if, if you could spend the day with anyone throughout history, who would you sit down with? Churchill. Yeah, I, I'd want to... Um, I'd want to ask him about this concept of, uh, of destiny, um, where he got it from, the extent to which he got it from his famous family, of course, the Churchill family, which had um, saved Britain in the past, the um, extent to which his parents imbued him with it, his schooling, his um, young um, years as, a, as an officer at Sandhurst, which, of course, was all about leadership. Um, whether or not it was something innate in his in himself, the, the writing that um, uh, that he read, writings that he read when he was a young subaltern. I'd love to um, talk to him, to interview him uh, about about that aspect, about the, the, the idea of having a, a star to guide yourself by. Um, he had a star. Uh, he actually, he actually, you, lots of people think that they have stars, but he actually thought it was Orion, the, the, the actual star called Orion, because it helped him, uh, saved his life on one occasion when he got lost in the desert in the Sudan. Um, so um, so that's the person. If I could have a day, if I could have a lunch um, and dinner with, um, with Churchill, um, with me being able to do a lot of the actual questioning and, and him being entirely honest um, uh, in his answers and not a sort of politician dealing with an interview, but uh, uh, somebody who had all his marbles at the end of his life, nothing to lose, nothing to uh, gain by it, except for the pleasure of uh, conversation. It's something I'd, I'd right now give my little finger to be able to do that. Yeah, you'd have to set up two baths right next to each other. You guys could just go on for hours discussing. Uh, I, I would love to hear that conversation. Unfortunately, I know I know we won't be able to do that. I just, I just have a few more quick ones here for you. I know you're a tremendous collector of artifacts and memorabilia. Your office uh, is 
the, the breadth of memorabilia across your office is incredible. Uh, I would love to know if you could have one piece of memorabilia, what would it be? Um, well, I probably, if the, I mean, I do think about this because we all think about what would happen if our house burned down and what you, you grab and everybody goes, oh, it'll be the photo albums of the children when they were small. No, what rubbish. <laughs> I'm not going to do that. I'm not going to do that. I've warned my children. I'm not going to do that. And anyway, you know, nowadays these things are all digitized. No way am I going to grab photo albums. I'm going to get, I'm going to grab Winston Churchill's bow tie, um, which I bought at auction a few years ago and which gives me immense pleasure every time I look at it. And uh, it's, it's, um, uh, it's the thing that I will, I will um, save um, after the uh, wife and children. Yeah, I know there's a, a video online of you showing that piece and, and going through some of the other pieces uh, throughout your office. What about? Oh is, dear, that's a disaster to do that. I, I shouldn't have done that. That's just an invitation to burglars, frankly, isn't it? <laughs> well, well, hopefully you have a, a good. Well, quite difficult system. to fence. I mean, quite difficult to fence a uh, Winston Churchill's bow tie. I think. <laughs> what What about something that you don't possess? Is, is there something out there that that you know has yes. lasted? Yes. What is that? Yes. The, Yes, there is. Oh, I'd, I'd be insane to tell you because one of your listeners will then go and buy it. <laughs> I, uh, I've got, there's no way would I tell you that. I've got my eye on it. I've had it my eye on it now for five years. I am still saving up. Um, I'd like to pretend that uh, being a author was the key to riches. It certainly isn't. It's a key to having a fascinating and rather lovely life and career, but uh, it doesn't necessarily mean that you can buy this historical artifact that I one day will get, I one day will get, but um, uh, unfortunately at the moment, it's just that little bit out of my uh, out of my reach. Fair enough, fair enough. So as we wrap up here... Invite invite me on again in a couple of yeah, years' time, <laughs> maybe whether or not I, I've managed to snap it. You never know, you know, especially with the world economy going into into free fall at the moment there might be a chance just to uh to get do a, a danny deal as we're called, as we call it in england luck and timing can be a hell of a thing uh, might be on your side here so we'll wrap up here you've studied all of these tremendous men and women these these great leaders what have you changed the most personally do you think after studying some of these people oh golly what a um very deep psychological um question to ask um so sorry what in me has changed as a result correct yep is that what you're asking yeah oh my gosh uh do you know i don't know you've got to ask somebody else that you've got to ask my wife that or or, <laughs> or somebody who who knows me i i don't think i've changed hugely since i was 20 years old um i i still have the same interests i mean i wouldn't mind being lord protector of england uh, by the way so i don't suppose i've actually changed since i was six years old um <laughs> um but no seriously i suppose ultimately i know now um in a way that i didn't when i was starting writing that it's a um it's a job for life it's something that i totally love doing i wouldn't consider doing anything else there was um you know i have in the past had had other ambitions and I'm so pleased that I never went down the paths of any of them except for being an historian because there are three separate bits of it. The research bit, which I love doing, 
the writing bit, which I hate, but I realize needs to be done. There's no other way. And then the publicizing bit, what we're doing now, chatting to one another and the, and the travel all around the world. My books have been translated into 22 languages. So I get to go around the world and talk to people who are interested in history um, and, um, and get paid to do it. So in a way, it's the dream job. Um, and I realize more and more that uh, it's the one that I was put on earth to do. Well, I'm so thankful that, that you turned down that potentially lucrative uh, investment banking career uh, be, because I truly mean it. I love your work. Uh, I think it's remarkable. The last six weeks, it's fun. It, I almost feel like I've spent time with you because I got to go back, reread Churchill, Walking with Destiny, Napoleon, A Life, and then your latest book, Leadership and War, Essential Lessons from Those Who Made History. Uh, so I really do appreciate your work. This has been incredibly entertaining, thought-provoking, and I'm just so appreciative of you and your work. So thank you for joining us on What Got You There. Thank you so much for having me on. I've really enjoyed it, Sean. We're going to have everything linked up, books, your social handles, things of that nature. Anywhere else or anything you want to direct the listeners to? No, no. I think we've we've really covered it. I mean, it's that's been a it's been a hell of a uh, journey. <laughs> <laughs> well, fantastic. Well, we'll have to schedule a time in a few years here to get you on for round two and uh, be celebrating. Yes, with yeah, you. I can tell <laughs> you about. Uh, I t- yeah. <laughs> well, thanks again for joining us on What Got You There. You are kind. Thanks a lot, Sean. I appreciate that. You guys made it to the end of another episode of What Got You There. I hope you guys enjoyed it. I really do appreciate you taking the time to listen all the way through. If you found value in this, the best way you can support the show is giving us a review, rating it, sharing it with your friends, and also sharing on social. I can't tell you how much I appreciate it. Looking forward to you guys listening to another episode.